time for another edition of Round Town. And today we are right here in town with our local UK Cooperative Extension Service horticultural agent, Andy Rideout. Hey, Andy. Good morning. That's a long title, isn't it? I lost my breath there for a second. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> but it, it's great that we actually have an extension council that thinks it's so important to have this kind of service. Not every county has their own horticultural agent. No, and you know, don't quote me, but out of 120 counties, I think we're at 30 or 32 horticultural agents. And I would argue that most of the hort agents of all the agents, of ag agents, FCS, and 4-H, we might be one of the busiest. Uh, Maybe not the busiest, but pretty dang close. I mean, we're known so much for being tops in soybeans. We're tops in corn production. But there's still a lot of um, home gardens. There's a a lot more horticultural products that are being grown in the fields in around. I I see a big one out at the edge of uh, Henderson and and Davis counties right now, right? Yes. You know, there's several big vegetable farms and even orchards. And we have three different peach orchards here in Henderson County. Uh, And that's three I know about. There's a couple of small ones, too, but I don't think they really grow commercially so much. But we have a lot of horticultural diversity here in our county. And if you start including surrounding counties, a lot of horticulture diversity that, that a lot of people aren't really aware of. I mentioned this as a possible topic to, uh, of course, our co-host here, Pim Fister-Clark. And Pim, what was your reaction? I love Andy. <laughs> <laughs> You've had a lot of uh, dealings together, right? Oh, as, as I'm far telling as, uh, you, I'm constantly texting photographs to Andy <laughs> of weird things <laughs> that grow on my trees and grow from the ground. And Now, she calls them weird. But in my line of work, we we see that a lot. So a lot of the stuff she sends me and other people send me are pretty common. But if you don't see them, they do come across weird. Slime slime mold is a great one. Oh, that looked like something from outer space. (laughs) Exactly. We have slime mold that always looks weird. I just got one of those samples in office again the other day. Uh, and a little note that says, what is this? <laughs> you know. And uh, then there's a couple of diseases that produce real horny-looking, fleshy galls on trees. Cedar apple rust and um, uh, fire I've blight causes some. Yeah. And so we get these really unique outer space-looking fungal bodies uh, that we get samples in a lot in the office. And that's the great thing because not just knowing what it is, but knowing how to address it and is it worth saving that's a lot of times the biggest decision you're going to have to make no doubt about it you know I look at a lot of plants throughout the community every year and uh, do hundreds of site visits every year and I see a lot of different things so sometimes I, I like to tell everybody sometimes plants just die sometimes I can't give you a reason sometimes it happens but there's sometimes that is pretty evident that is the main cause and if we can fix that now we might can save this tree Bill you brought up a great point that Sometimes plants aren't worth saving. And I just looked at a maple tree the other day, for instance, that probably is 100 plus years old. And that's pretty old for a maple. Uh, And I'm surprised it's still there to begin with. But it's got some disease problems. It's got some rotting going on in the middle. That probably is not worth the effort to save because its life is going to be shortened. It's short life left. Uh, and so the, the work and the expense to set, try to save this maple tree is probably going to be futile. And uh, I would argue at that point, it's time to take it down. Now, now this couple, uh, happy couple with their tree, uh, really hated to hear that news. And, and uh, so that sometimes i got to give tough info, you know, and, and, uh, but, but that's the truth. You know, it's probably time to go. A lot of trees do have a limited life, don't they? Like birch trees? Uh, no doubt. 
No yeah. doubt. You know, every species of tree has a expected lifespan. Now, just like us, uh, you know, we, what is the average age of a, a male in Kentucky? You know, is 86, 87 years old. But I know people that are 90. Uh, we all know one in here, which ama he's an amazing guy, uh, that 90 years old uh, here in Henderson. And, and so we outlive our expectations a lot of times, but, um, but sometimes we don't, too. And, and uh, uh, so that's just an average lifespan of an oak tree or of a maple tree, or just like humans. And depending on its conditions and how well it likes its area and, and how it's treated, uh, that has a major effect also. And these are considerations to take into account when you're replacing Definitely. A very longtime friend that uh, unfortunately is no longer with us. Call before you dig first, yes, yes. and uh, that's always important. Is it going to get enough sunlight? Is it good drainage? Is it really a tree that's going to do well in our climate? I went by a house not too long ago, actually uh, just across the river, and I thought it was kind of interesting. They had planted uh, bananas all around their perimeter of their house. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. It looks like they're doing okay right now. Yeah. That's usually not a, a tree that you're going to find very often in these neck of the woods. Yes, banana trees are tropicals is what we call them. So you can grow them indoors fairly well. Uh, they struggle during the winter, not because you aren't keeping it warm enough, typically. It's more so because uh, of daylight hours. Uh those tropicals need tons of sunlight. And tomatoes are a great example, too. They're, they're really not a tropical, but they're, they require, uh, you know, nine, ten hours of sunlight per day before they'll ever fruit. So you see some people sometimes try to grow tomatoes indoors and grow them during the winter, and without supplemental lighting, probably not going to have tomatoes. And tropicals, in general, are kind of like that, too. They're not going to really thrive without that major, major amount of sunlight. So we do see some tropicals. If you're going to go that route, just know it's not an easy road to hoe. That's right. <laughs> no doubt. It takes a lot, of, a lot of work. Let's talk a little bit. Basically, we're going to do this once a quarter each season, take a, a look at what's going on. But let's take a, a step back, though, to the winter of 2022-23, because we're seeing some of the after effects now, aren't we? Definitely. You know, uh, I've had hundreds of phone calls, literally hundreds, and half of them probably this year were about our loss of some plants. And so I, early on, back in like April or early May, we started seeing this damage wasn't, wasn't a typical damage to some plants. And plants that really got hit were laurels, boxwoods, even azaleas, which are pretty hardy through our winters, four or five different plants in particular, crepe myrtles, uh, which they get hit occasionally with a, a rough winter. But these plants that we were seeing, like laurels, that were dying back to the ground, or some of them totally dead. Uh, so I got with a specialist at, at UK, a couple of them, and we talked it through a little bit. We looked back at some weather patterns, and what we kind of all concluded on was back before Christmas, we went from like 60 plus degrees for several weeks there, and we dropped within a 48 hour period to like minus two one night. And so what happens when, that, when an event like that happens is we have a lot of moisture inside the plant. Every plant cell is really loaded with moisture, and they froze and bust. The plant didn't have time to get rid of that excess moisture in preparation for winter. Uh, and plants are smart. They know they need to do that, but when it's 60 plus degrees, they, nothing triggers them to start that process. Uh, so because of that and all these plant cells that bust, we have dead plants, completely dead some, uh, and then some plants uh, die back to the ground or close to it. And so we saw a lot of damage 
from an event, not really a, a abnormal winter, just a, an event that took place. Because it just really wasn't enough time. We had not had that really hard of a frost or killing frost no. to prepare these plants for what came that one space exactly. of a few days. My little analogy for it is if we send you out to Denver and send you up to a 14,000 foot peak and you don't acclimate yourself for a day or two to the elevation, you're going to have troubles. And, and it's kind of similar with these plants. They mm-hmm. do not have time to acclimate. So that got us. And I think, Pam, you've actually experienced some of that uh, yourself, haven't you? Well, my mother particularly is in Bowling Green, but she lost all of her 40-year-old boxwoods. Mm. And and they didn't just die to the ground. Uh, they're dead. Yeah. Now, I have damage on my hedge. My question would be, at, it's at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And so can I go ahead and remove that now, or should I wait? Okay, there's two or three parts to this question. One is is some of the damage, like on boxwoods in particular, I have some boxwoods at home, and, and very I've looked at several of them like this. Parts of the plant are dead. So right now, we've waited long enough that if it's not green now, it's not coming back. So it's time to trim out the dead, and then you have to make a decision. How much is left, and am I patient enough to let this plant fill back out and grow back out? Or is it bad enough that I yank it and put in a new one? Okay, so that's the first big decision you have to make right now. Now, when we talk long-term, some of these plants were old and big, and you're going to probably more likely start out with a smaller one, you know. So there's no way around that. Uh, we, we have to still make that same decision. Do we, do we replace it or do we cut it out and, and, and uh, let it fill back in and so forth? But boxwoods in particular, there's certain varieties of boxwoods, uh, cultivars, that perform better in our winters. And I can show you clear examples of that. Uh, winter gem is a very popular one. It, most of the winter gems in our area survived and, and they have few dead spots, but they'll fill back in, no big deal. But we have some other varieties in front of our office that are probably 20 plus years old. Not a branch alive, uh, totally dead. So when you go pick out these new plants to replace them, Think about that a little bit. Do a little bit of research and read up on them and pick the best cultivar. We have a lot of cultivars that do perform and handle those uh, events better. Well, I was just going to mention, Holly's also got the, the hit, didn't they? Because yes. they're, they're kind of the same type of family. Yep. And so pretty much the same advice there. If, if it was going to grow back, mm-hmm. then it's probably already started to do that. If not, you need to make that decision exactly whether and, or not to and replace I, it. I suggest go ahead and cut out all the dead and take a hard look at it and decide then. Don't try to decide before you cut out the dead. You may be surprised after you cut the dead out how nice how, it kind of looks. How much it, of it yeah, has been able to, have, to come back. Yeah. Is there a particular cultivar or species of, of holly that does better? You see a lot at the nurseries of uh, China girls and China boys and things like that. China girls, China boys are, are some of our old standards, and it's hard to beat old standards. They become very popular, and they became used quite often because they performed well. There, there are several others. There's our dragon lady out there, Holly. It's a little pricklier, a little different look, but supposedly has really good winter tolerance for us. That standard American holly, which is a bigger tree than some of our China girls, China boys, but it performs quite well. So there, there are several options out there, and there's two or three more that I, I wouldn't be able to come up with right out of the gate, but uh, the best thing you can do, and, and I, I'll tell my little trade secret, you know, because I'm not the smartest guy in the world, and I rely on, on specialists and books and all kind of stuff. So 
you know, anytime I get questions that I can't answer, I do some Googling just like everybody else. But what's important is, is how I Google, okay? And so my first Google advice is if you want some good research-based information, do like I do. And when you Google, tag on the end .edu, okay? What that's going to do is it's going to narrow down your search to some research publications from uh, universities across the United States. And you can trust in those uh, research-based information quite well. So I start there. So that's, if you call me at the office. That's a great tip. That's what I would do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really is. Yeah. Let me ask you about some pests. Evidently, harsh winter weather does not kill spider mites. <laughs> no. Spider mites have been the bane of my existence. Yep. And I lost some beautiful dwarf Alberta spruces mm-hmm. to spider mites last year. Mm-hmm. Also, snails. Mm-hmm. Yep. And let me tell you that, see, I thought I had the answer to my snail problem because I put a bunch of pennies in my garden. Mm-hmm. I thought that was cheap snail <laughs> prevention since. until <laughs> Bill over here told me that there was very little copper in a penny. So that's the care dreams, of that. Crush yeah. my dreams. Sorry about that. No. <laughs> Don't blame me. Blame the U.S. Mint. <laughs> They're the ones who changed it to zinc. Exactly. Yeah, when we talk about pests, there's different ways to control pests. And, and I'm a organic guy at heart. I don't like spraying pesticides. And when I say pesticides, I'm talking about insecticide, herbicide, fungicide, all of it. I don't like to, but I also know that Japanese beetles, when they move in on my flowers, there's not a good organic way to take care of those. And I want to save my flowers, so I revert to traditional insecticides. So spider mites. Spider mites are very destructive, especially to some of our spruces and and, uh, even pines. And they'll get on azaleas. But I, too, have lost an Alberta spruce. And I say lost it. I'm I'm working hard to keep it right now. And they only grow like an inch and a half a year. And so mine is about four or five foot tall. And I really hate to lose this thing. So I am now applying conventional insecticides to it kind of regularly, about every 15 days. I'll spray it again, trying to save this thing. So spider mites get inside the plant, and they harbor, and they, they, they keep warm inside that plant during the winter. And they survive our winters very well. But they do tremendous damage in the spring when they come out and start feeding and multiplying. And, and they'll take down a, 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 a spruce or a, a, a lot of evergreens pretty quickly sometimes. The problem is with our insecticides, majority of them, we spray them, and then it rains a couple days later, and we've lost the effectiveness of, of that spray. So... You always have to read the label and follow the instructions, and it'll tell you spray every 10 days or every 14 days or what have you. But you also have to make modifications based on weather. Uh, and the hotter it gets, the more humid it gets, we have worse problems with, with spider mites. Tell me about mm-hmm. neem oil. Yes. Neem oil is basically a big deterrent more than anything. And if you can get neem oil on there, you need to put it on like March, April because you're really preventing them, and it prevents them from multiplying, prevents them from feeding, and, and deters them more than anything. It's almost like putting uh, vegetables inside my donut box. You know, if I open it up and I just see the vegetables, <laughs> you know, I might be deterred a little. So that's, and neem oil is great for that, uh, but it's a preventative more than a curative. Uh, so realize what you're doing. The soapy solution, the uh, horticulture soap solution we use in spray, that's really good for a lot of insects, but some it is not. Doesn't, it's not very effective, like Japanese beetles. They hate it, but, but they get over it after a day or two. So it, it's not super effective. 
for mites, the soapy solution does pretty well, but you have to apply it every couple, three days, you know. And that, that makes it a little harder to do, especially if you have a lot of shrubs and, and so forth. But the biggest advice I can give you on mites is get them early and put down the neem oil in, oh, March or April. Prevent those things. Actually, Pim was on the right track with her snails yeah. as far as the copper yes. is concerned. What is the best way to address snails? Oh, there is no good way, easy way, I'll say that, right. to address snails. Now, there's been some research done with beer. Snails like beer, and you can put little trays of beer around and the snails crawl in it and die. I guess they get drunk and overdose. <laughs> I guess, I don't know, you know. <laughs> Maybe that's a more humane way to, to put it. They, they just... <laughs> Go to sleep forever. Yeah, they just go to sleep. They yeah. die happy. <laughs> <laughs> then, yeah. So, so that apparently has a little effectiveness, but snails are very difficult, and and not all that. But insecticides don't don't affect them much. Uh, so, we're not looking to spray an insecticide. Well, now, I mean, here you've got this uh, you know, perfect predator, right? Because they carry this uh, suit of armor with yeah. them wherever they go. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's They're, hard to penetrate. They are. And we have a few pests like that that are very difficult and we mm-hmm. really don't have good solutions for. Uh, so, the only solutions we have to fall back on at that point is, well, select plants that they don't like and plant those. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, sure. That's our solution, you know, for, prevent the problem to begin with. Uh, and that happens every now and then. Now, you mentioned copper, and I, I'll speak real quickly about copper. Copper is toxic to animal life in general, including us, okay, at, at a high enough level, okay? So if, if pennies had a lot of copper and you took a bath in pennies, uh, I don't know, drank the water, I, I, ingested a lot of copper, you would be sick too, okay? So copper is uh, um, also very effective against fungal problems. So we have copper sprays as an organic option to, to cure some fungal diseases. But it's also toxic to insects to a level. And our uh, pollinators. Mm-hmm. I know we have to really protect our yes. pollinators. Mm-hmm. No doubt. So it's kind of a yeah. fine. It's very fine. Fine line. <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you, since you brought that up, my wife and I have planted some pumpkins just to mess around with and have some orange and white pumpkins out there and so forth. I was looking at them yesterday, and I've sprayed nothing on them. And they're putting on pumpkins already. We had a few that we planted early that are... Uh, we, it's hard to sell a pumpkin in July. Okay, <laughs> but, so anyway, if y'all want to buy a pumpkin, call me. <laughs> you know, I got them ready. <laughs> but we have others that are planted at the right time, and they'll be ready in October. But they have some bugs on them, and I didn't identify the bug. I need to. But I told my wife, I said, I hate to spray these these bugs because we've got a bunch of them that are in bloom right now. And if I come out and spray an insecticide, we won't get good pollination because we're driving off the bees as well. So hence another big uh, decision I have to make. Do I want to spray some insecticides or do I accept some damage and, and not spray and not mess up my pollination? You know? So those are big questions for vegetable fruit growers that we make all the time, which includes protecting our bees also. So big decisions. Lots of insects hate soap. That is my go-to insecticide to begin with. Because I can spray it on about anything. Doesn't Does it hurt, hurt plants. bees? Does Doesn't it hurt? hurt bees. Okay. Bees don't like it. Uh-huh. So, sure. so you might reduce pollination. But you won't kill but them. No. Okay. So, so soap is probably the easiest on the environment, easiest on insects in general, but it deters them and kills some, and it's so safe. Why would you not use it first, you know, instead of going to the harsher products? I highly encourage keep a spray bottle with uh, soap. Now, I always tell people Dawn dish detergent. The reason we say Dawn is because a lot of dish detergents have uh, 
uh, smells put in them, some oils put in them for smell and different products. We know Dawn is safe to do this, and, and some of these other additives they put in them is not safe for some plants. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't want to tell you to spray any old dish detergent, and you got one that smells like lavender and uh, whatever, whatever, and, and it's got an extra bleach ingredient. And, yes, that's what <laughs> well, I was going to say. Yeah, it's dish yeah. detergent, not cleaner. Yes, exactly. That might have bleach yeah. in it. And that's what you have to be careful. So Dawn is a pretty pure soap without all these additives. And if you remember when the big oil spill, what they used to clean the ducks? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, the wildlife, yeah. <laughs> Maybe my mother should spray her fuel lines of her car because the squirrels you know, ate my mother's car's fuel line and gas tank. Yeah. We have a wildlife biologist uh, that works for Extension at UK and very smart guy, Matthew Springer, and uh, does a great job. But even he, I think, would agree that some of the toughest pest problems we deal with are squirrels, moles, snails, mm -hmm. uh, and they're just tough. Uh, they're, they're smarter than most insects. <laughs> and, you know, usually an insect will get a disease off of a weed and then bring it to a plant is typically how it works. And so a lot of our control measures are if you want to prevent this disease, prevent the weeds first, this type of weed in particular, uh, or prevent the insect, one of the two, break that cycle. You know, So we, we see it a lot. I think in all the times we've talked, we've never said that. Yeah, I don't think so. That, that is that's fantastic. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. I thought you were going to say that we're going to have to put masks on all our plants. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe. You know, that leads to a whole other topic that's we'll talk the, about Maybe one that's day. a different Easier day. Easier than putting yeah, masks on day. insects, putting little masks <laughs> on all the little we insects. We use nets on vegetable crops quite often. Sure. Instead yeah. of spraying insecticides, mm -hmm. we, we exclude uh, so we keep so in effect, that's, that's kind of what we're doing. You heard it here. Anything else about summer season? It's kind of a busy time because you're doing a lot in the lawn as far as keeping it mowed. You're probably doing some uh, trimming of, of different things. So I'll make two or three comments. One is anytime you can wait till fall to do some trimming, it's better. Okay, you don't want to stress your plants any more in July and August than they have to be. They're already stressed with heat and and drought and so forth. So so wait if you can. Now this would be mm -hmm. your perennials maybe rather than your annuals? Yes, Okay. Uh, mainly, but even annuals you, you got to be a little careful on. You know every plant's a little different so I generalize a lot, but every plant is a little different in, in how they tolerate it. So uh, with, let's just use a knockout rose as mm -hmm. an example, you just would not want to deadhead that back. Is that right? You it just strictly would deadhead the It wouldn't bloom? bother me to deadhead. Take the blooms off, Take old the blooms, blooms off. off. Okay. That wouldn't bother me at all. And okay. and just so you know, knockout roses are very resilient to heat and drought. So I don't think you'll hurt them anyway. But we are a little careful about transmitting disease in the summer, rose mosaic virus in particular. And so if you go out there and start cutting big canes out of your uh, roses, knockout roses, and you're using the same pair of clippers, you know, clip, clip, mm -hmm. clip. Right now is the best time to transmit that disease. So you might want to hold off and not do any major pruning on those things until fall. Yeah. And make sure you clean your equipment. I learned that oh, from yeah. working with tobacco yes. farmers. You have if to we, sterilize. Yes. If we have disease like black shank and tobacco that we know transmits very easily, we do. We have a 2% bleach solution we dip our tri trimmers in before we make every cut. You know, That prevents that spread. You know. But definitely I would hold off on any stressful activity to your plant you could until mm -hmm. fall. And then secondly, I would argue, uh, I'm getting several phone calls and looking at plants that have been overwatered or underwatered, okay? 
So my argument in general is this, is I would rather your plant be watered thoroughly, very deeply, and soaking, and then let it dry out. And it might take a week or two, depending on if it's in a pot or a plant or in the ground or whatever. It may take two, two weeks before you water again. Now, don't do like, I was going to say like my mother did, but she may not appreciate that. But, you know, when she waters her little bit of grass, she just sprinkles it with a little water hose and we've got it. No, you're hurting it more than you're helping it doing that. Uh, you're encouraging roots to come up shallow for the water. So once again, water deeply and infrequently. Uh, let that plant even wilt some and then water it deeply again. That's the best thing you can do during the next two months. I'll ask one question about geraniums. Is a geranium in a pot one of those plants that you should not water very often? And I notice that the color becomes so much more vibrant in the fall. Mm -hmm. And that is probably due to water, whether too much or too little or not thoroughly watered or whatever. In the fall, our driest month of the year usually is like September, uh, October even. Uh, sometimes it's two driest months. And a lot of our fall plants do the best right then. Well, dryness is, is part of it. That, that's producing that vibrant color and all that's what the plant responds to. So you need to think about that a little bit. And once again, I go back to every plant is a little different, you know, and, and I, I can only generalize to a certain point. <laughs> and then I've got to start talking about individual plants. You know. That sounds great. I think things are looking good overall, though, aren't they? They are. It's been a pretty good crop year. It's been a, a good tree year. Um, we, we've got, we, we were really dry in June, and that, that started setting some stuff back. But we got some rain in time. Uh, at the 1st of July there that sprung things back in motion, you know. And, uh, I think so. farmers call those uh, million-dollar rains. Yes, I think we got yes. a couple of those, didn't we? We got a couple, no doubt. Very important with row crops in particular, timing of a couple of rains. Right. And I believe we're past the danger zone. I think we're okay. But that goes for a lot of horticultural crops, too. Now, I was sad to see we had a late frost this year, and we lost a lot of peaches. In we sure did. But they lost them in Georgia, too. Uh, and what's really interesting, and, and you'll have to do some research, another topic for a different day, but we have growing degree days is what it's called, and peaches need so many degree days during the winter to produce peaches. So Georgia lost a lot of their peaches not based on a late frost, based on they didn't get the cool days that, that'll uh, support peach development. Uh, so it's real interesting if you really get deep into that. You'll probably notice the difference at the uh, fruit stand price, right? Very likely. <laughs> <laughs> when you go to buy peaches uh, here this next year is when it'll probably hit us. You mentioned that earlier. I think we may take this for granted, how fortunate we are to live so close to this type of production. Mm -hmm. uh, that's You don't find that we, in we, many uh, other places, I think, yeah. in Kentucky, right? We live in the transition zone, actually. And that means we can grow warm season crops, cool season crops equally as well. Now, we also have equally the number of problems, <laughs> you know, with, with growing both. Uh, but we're, we are fortunate to live where we live in Kentucky, and, and uh, we can grow a lot of different variety of different crops. And, uh, and you can't in Michigan, and you can't in Florida, you know, so it's nice. Very cool. All right, Andy, thank you so much. Oh, enjoy. Pleasure, as Anytime. always. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yep. So glad to have you. Enjoyed. Look forward to the next time we can talk a little bit more about the fall. And, of course, a great time to be planting. Mm -hmm. and like you say, a better time to do some pruning as well and a lot of other great things. And we can maybe talk about how your pumpkins look. Yeah, we'll talk about them. Good deal. <laughs> maybe we can talk about some plants that give really good winter interest. Yeah, yeah. I'll start making a list. Okay. Sounds, Sounds great. great. Thanks so much for spending your time with us. We'll have more great topics 
for you each Monday and Friday. They'll be posted to our website and also wherever you find your podcasts. Have an idea for our show? Email us at aroundtownwithstarkandclark at gmail.com and be sure to tell your friends. He's Stark. And she's Clark. And until next time, we'll We'll see see you around around town. town.